get um, John Moore and Dr. Phil Ferguson. Good morning. Good morning, Jamie. Oh, Good to be here again. <laughs> yes, Friday, 8.30, politics chat, as always. Indeed. Kicking off with uh, International Women's Day. It was on Wednesday. Mm. Um, had um, an event over at the museum. Uh, in Dunedin, and there were marches around the world again, um, and it's great to see. We, you know, we had the um, March for Women uh, a couple of months ago as well, and just millions and millions of people coming out uh, to say enough is enough. Uh, we're sick and tired of uh, inequality, um, and something needs to be done about it. But um, you're going to kick it off with telling us a little bit about the history of International Women's Day. Yeah, it's certainly never been a huge deal in New Zealand. Uh, but it has always been internationally. So there, there's still a number of countries in the world that have it as a, as a public holiday. And it goes right back to the turn of last century. And um, it was very much uh, initiated by socialists, by socialist women, rather than initially coming out of the feminist movement. Uh, so we can go right back to 1909, when the first Women's Day was celebrated in America. And that was actually initiated by the Socialist Party of America. So yes, America actually had a Socialist Party yes. back in 1909. Amazingly yeah. enough, um, and a year later at a um, international socialist conference in Germany, uh, th- there was a, pr- a proposal that this day be made an international day for women, and that's exactly what happened. So initially, it was European countries that took up the call mm-hmm. to uh, celebrate this day. Um, after the 1917 Russian Revolution, it was made a public holiday in Bolshevik Russia. And I, I guess that's why you still see today that the countries that do have it as a national holiday are either countries that are ostensibly communist, like China, for example, and Cuba, mm-hmm. Laos, Vietnam, or countries that have that communist legacy. So that's well, interesting. And that's possibly why it's, um, it's never been taken up by a few Western <laughs> countries, because it's got that connotation <laughs> with communism. Plus, you know, I mean, yeah. it's they're talking about um, freedom for women and then you just look at those nations and how many people are unfree. It's kind of quite funny. Yeah, that's very true, yes. Um, I mean, yeah, if we look objectively, there's been some achievements, social achievements for women in those countries. Yes. So in terms of women's participation in the workforce in countries like China, that's um, uh, certainly a lot significantly higher than it was pre-1940s. But at the same time, political power is firmly held by men in those countries. If mm. you look at sort of uh, uh, Politburo meetings in China, it's almost 100% men. Yep. So, yes, there is something slightly farcical about that. Um so yeah, I guess Women's Day has evolved over the years. Uh, it's sort of lost its socialist connotations, I think, um, and uh, and perhaps is seen as more as a, a general day for women as a whole. And it's certainly been in certain countries it's been championed by the the, the feminist movement uh, since the early 1970s from the women's liberation movement mm-hmm. that sort of developed at that time. Yeah, yeah. Because originally it was also International Working Women's Day, like it was a working class women's day. It mm-hmm. wasn't, yeah, it wasn't originally connected with feminism or even with this kind of middle class or upper class women. And I get, I think probably the people that, the women that started it, like Clara Zetkin and others, would be quite horrified at kind of wealthy women having champagne breakfasts to talk about how to network more effectively, like a sort of female version of the of the old boys network. Um, so, like John said, yeah, it, it's tended to, especially in countries like New Zealand, to lose that 
more kind of working class socialist women's yeah. um, you know, uh, connections but in places like uh, like say Cuba um, that aspect of it is still very very strong and of course you have a huge um, working class women's movement in Cuba as well that yeah. kind of keeps those issues to the fore mm -hmm. well, I, I guess things have always kind of evolved and maybe that's evolved here like you said it's hardly oh, you know Rich women sitting in Molly Hill having champagne and talking about the networking. Yeah, no good. But then again, like the events that are going on uh, down at the museum mm -hmm. and other events, as you know, and uh, of the last few days in, in Parliament and everywhere else is, uh, you know, about getting um, uh, equal equal yeah. uh, pay. You know, um, you know, um, about not discriminating about against women when you're employing just because you think, oh, shit, eventually they're going to get pregnant, they're not going to be at work. Blah, 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 blah. These are still huge, massive issues. Um, and I think the, the yeah. fact that you're seeing a few more celebration of events in New Zealand sort of indicates how gender politics are coming to the fore now mm -hmm. and are, are, are seen, are being pushed in a, in a lot of circles. And I think that's got to do with the general rise of sort of radical radicalism and anti-establishment politics so people people are sort of discussing these issues of say um, how far have women come in terms of, of women's liberation and the fight against oppression and, and over the last few years that's become yeah if you look at the media mainstream media um, discussion of gender issues has become a lot more prominent and so it should be and, yeah. yeah absolutely, you know, absolutely. yeah I think it's also part of this greater discussion about inequality like there's a lot more discussion in New Zealand about inequality over the last few years than what there was for probably decades earlier yeah. and so people just think you know it's 2017 why on earth is there the pay gap between men and women that there is how come that wasn't you know overcome years and years ago I mean it's decades since we had equal pay legislation in New Zealand yeah you know and of course years and years ago women had to fight their way into both the professions and also into the higher paid um, working class jobs you know mm -hmm. like yeah. In my generation, a lot of female friends of mine worked in the freezing works, or they wanted to work in the freezing works when they were students in the summer. Yeah, and they had to fight to get onto the offal floor. They had to fight to to do knife work, boning, um, to become slaughterers, and so on. Um, and there was a big fight by women to get into those those jobs that we just don't hear anything about today. And in the professions, in law, medicine, um, science. Mm -hmm. and so on you know there was a there's a big big um, struggle so there's certainly been successes along the way but those battles were fought and won decades ago yeah and yeah. and it's like things have just stood still mm -hmm. so that the pay gap stopped shrinking years and years ago and no government has done anything about it yeah, no, I, it was, when I worked at the Freezing Works for those years that I did, it was exactly the same. And I, to be honest, I can't remember, I can only remember one female with a, with a knife. Right. You know, one female that actually got a full-time knife job. The rest of them were, were either packing or yeah. in, on the slaughter floor, they were loading. Like. T uh, terrible. Um, and it was the same, you know, it's still happening in the armed forces. Uh, women are trying to get on equal footing if they want to go to the front and, and whatnot. I mean, it's stupid, it should be the armed forces anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, you know. Uh, yeah. So.
Yeah, no, the idea that a woman has certain roles and men have different roles, although it's been chipped away yeah. to a significant degree, especially since uh, the 60s and the rise of the women's liberation movement and the participation of unions and pushing for equality as well, the more progressive unions. But you're still, yeah, like you said, you're still seeing in areas such as armed services that that, that mentality, that ideology, that, that there's a differentiation between the roles of men and women. Um, you're still seeing it. At, at the political level, that throughout the world, um, I think virtually every parliament in the world, it's still a majority of men. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. Know, um, and uh, maybe not enough questions asked about that, why that is the case. It's a massive issue in the music industry, too, I can tell you that much. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's mm. huge issues with men and uh, their power and using that power for fucking not very good re- uh, things, to be mm. honest. It's quite gross. I mean, you see, it's uh, te- in teaching as well. So yeah. I, I worked as a primary school teacher for quite a few years. and uh, and I was, and and yeah, at primary level, the vast majority of teachers are women. However, um, to my understanding, the vast majority of principals are men. Yeah. So again, that's a that's something that's not really discussed openly or really, but it's it's yeah, it's, it's of concern. Quite often in mainstream um, radio and music, television, stuff like that, people still when you've got like a. Um, all woman group or a, f- a female um, front woman or, or just a female in a band that always ask what's it like to be a female in a rock band you know <laughs> a female right and it's like yeah. why is that even a fucking question they're a musician yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're yeah. making music it's, the sexuality doesn't come into it yeah. uh, I mean well, the sex doesn't come into it at all but yeah, it's it's still still maybe in the 50s or 60s that was a relevant question but it's <laughs> a bit old now isn't right, it I mean it should never have been a relevant question <laughs> no. and, and that's the issue um, you know so where are we going you know are, are we getting close to doing it because you could you could close the gap overnight right you could do yeah and I think one of the problems with the gendered pay gap that it does is kind of reinforce traditional roles that would have been undermined sooner so for instance one of the reasons that's given for the gendered pay gap is that when women have children, they're the ones that leave work. Well, if, if you're a couple, it kind of makes sense because the man is going to be earning more. So if you had equal pay, if you had real equal pay, it could just as well be the man that takes, you know, a year or two years or whatever, or a couple of years yeah. off, off. But because of that gendered pay gap, it then reinforces the idea mm-hmm. that, you know, that women... Uh, the child rearers and that it's somehow natural for the women to, to, to stay at home um, and then that of course is used to justify the gendered pay gap so it's like a vicious circle yeah. whereas if there was complete um, pay equi- equality that wouldn't be the case either. Having yeah. said that, you know, like you do notice really significant changes like when I was young you would never see a father carrying a child around or pushing a pram it was it was almost unheard of. Like yeah, there was yeah. something wrong with a, with a man that pushed a pram. What? Fifty years ago, <laughs> you just never saw it. Whereas now, it would be very strange if you went in the city and the only people pushing prams were women. You just were just now completely socialised into the idea that men push prams. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, it, it's it's not just in the workforce, though, is it? You know, it's not the only issues we're, we're um, you know where women are facing things like, um, you know, you can go to a, you know, you can men can get Viagra on the cheap with from a doctor, but women can't get sanitary products. 
you know mm. uh, they can't even get you know why is there still GST on that shit this is a, it's, it's not yeah. a luxury but it's still <laughs> things like that are treated like a luxury yeah and, and I, I find that um, you know yeah. it's, it's pretty fucked up to be honest yeah there's also things like um, although in practice we have a relatively liberal situation regarding abortion on paper we have a really oh, really reactionary yeah, you know, ab- abortion law still technically illegal yeah yeah that's yeah. right that's and right. it's and you know twi- there's real reluctance from most members of parliament to change the, the legislation yeah. to make to make uh, most abortions that are currently carried out actually legal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet public opinion would be much more towards women's right to choose on the abortion issue and obviously much more inclined to equal pay yeah. as, as well. Yeah, there was you a know. recent survey that yeah. showed um, a majority, a slight majority of New Zealanders felt that uh, yeah, abortion should be made fully legal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but you know, but then the people that go and, uh, out and actually vote uh, and people that lobby are f- yeah. uh, family first and old people yeah. that still have religious connections and whatnot. Yeah. I, I think these powers so, really you know, weaken. Yeah. Like, yeah. Groups like Spark, yeah. for example, that heavily campaigned against uh, women's right to choose were very prominent in the 90s, but now you really don't they don't have a public presence much yeah. at all mm-hmm. I put it down to just uh, that politician states there as a vote winner um, not necessarily that there'll be a big backlash if, if there's a push to uh, decriminalise abortion but just that they don't see it as a priority because yeah. they don't see it as a vote winner which is yeah um, if that is the thinking behind uh, politicians reluctance to push this issue then it's quite cynical yeah well we but need all these things to change and then all the you know to change the entire mindset of uh, you know I don't want to say the vast majority of males in this country but a lot of them you know that, that still think that catcalling is appropriate that still think it's alright to comment on a woman's body and a, a woman's choice of clothing and, and sexualise a woman whereas men you know don't get sexualised but women still do and like you know you flip through a magazine and, and what you know what do you see pretty thing trying to sell things it's um so you know still using sex to sell products yeah i think you know there's some interesting progress there like in britain the thing about the the woman who challenged the high heels and and, and, you know like how women were supposed to look when they were in um, and this is like office office work you know they're supposed to look nice for the clients blah 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 I'm not sure about the sexualized thing because I think that the trend that's happened is that women are still sexualized and now men are sexualized as well so I think you've actually got an increasing commodification of the human body per se and that although it's still much more that women's bodies are commodified I think there's actually quite a lot of commodification of men's bodies um, Mm -hmm. going on but on the abortion thing like I remember um, because I'm quite ancient um, <laughs> some, of the, some of the first protests that I ever went on when I was a high school kid were marches for women's right to choose. And that campaign started in 1972. Mm-hmm. And I remember it quite well because they were some of the first protests as a high school kid I went on. And in those days, Spuck would just mobilise tens of thousands of people on the street, including all the kids from the Catholic yeah, hi- yeah. high schools and, and, yeah. and the churches. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's 45 years ago. Well, no, actually, 1973, yeah, 1973, I think, was the beginning of the Women's National Abortion Action Coalition. Um, and that's 44 years ago. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a more reactionary law on paper anyway, although we have a more liberal situation. Yeah. Like, that 
that legislation should have been gone. You know, it, well, it should never have existed, but it certainly should have been gone decades and decades ago. And the same thing, like, when was the Equal Pay Act back in the 1970s? Yeah. Um, I know in Britain, like, it was um, at the very end of the 60s after the women workers strike at Fort Dagenham, and yet the pay gap is, you know, still exists. I mean, we're talking about almost half a century mm. that not a lot of progress on material things like equal pay, the right to abortion, and so on, not much is... But it's a good thing that these issues are suddenly coming up again yeah. and yeah. being given prominence. And yeah. yeah, I think, uh, as I said before, and Phil said before, it's got to do with that sort of suddenly uh, politics around gender issues, around issues in, in inequality are suddenly being yeah. discussed in a way that they haven't been for a long time. Well, it's time to name and shame, especially within government uh, departments. Yeah, it's time yeah. for them to come out with who's getting paid, what, when and how. You don't have to name names, but you can yeah. see you know, what women are getting paid compared to what men are getting paid in the governments in the same role. And if there's an issue with, I mean, if, if it's happening in the government, then fuck, yeah, you know, yeah. and that, that needs to change, they need to lead by example. Mm. But I also wonder what the public sector unions are doing, because the public sector is the place where unions are strongest. I mean, union density, in, I think, in the private sector is about 7%, mm -hmm. whereas in, you know, the unions are basically based these days in the public sector. You know, like, they should have been fighting tooth and nail for decades. Come on, TEU. For... Yeah, for for equal pay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I'm talking about the big public sector unions of people who work um, in government departments you know, yeah. for the state and so on. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like it should be a big priority of the PSA and any other union that organises in the public sector. Well, one would think it would be, and one would yeah. think it would be built into contracts, right? I mean, everybody. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, all right. So you know. I was about to say, long may this uh, fight continue, but I want the fight to be finished. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and also, we've got to remember, yeah. internationally, uh, quite a, possibly the majority of the world, women's rights have certainly not advanced to the degree that they have in countries like New Zealand. They yeah. had a very strong uh, women's liberation movement, a very strong trade union movement, they've pushed women's rights as well. So in large parts of the world, from Saudi Arabia to Egypt yeah. to um, a whole host of countries, India, yeah. uh, women are very much second-class citizens at best yeah 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 and but I mean a lot of that's got to come down to faith and it's going to yeah. change within within the because you know within those countries they've themselves got religious laws you know which, yeah sure which, uh, I mean I guess it, uh, to say something controversial part of the problem I see in that that, that those struggles for women's rights haven't been internationalised because of the dominance of sort of relativist uh, ideologies within liberal circles within sort of universities now where where it's not seen as the place of people in the West or you know, women liberationists, feminists in the West to criticise uh, non-Western countries. So there's a lot of hesitancy in criticising countries like Saudi Arabia where women can't drive um, or uh, countries like Egypt where 98% of women say they have been sexually molested. There's a real hesitancy of, of actually criticising those countries and also linking up with with uh, the small groups of women that are pushing for equality in those countries and it's, it's, it's very risky and dangerous for them. In countries yeah. like Saudi Arabia it's completely illegal for them to campaign for equal rights and they can be put in prison so I think that's something to think about as well. How how can the struggle for women's liberation be internationalised more? Yeah, and I think a lot of countries it's not connected directly with religion because there's a lot of countries in which the religious influences uh, or domination aren't 
aren't so strong but we are the, the problems are those of poverty underdevelopment massive social inequality and where women in a lot of third world countries um, are actually in the workforce but are paid really really low wages and the men are paid extremely low wages and the women are paid even lower mm-hmm. um, and yeah people often in the west don't kind of really want to know too much about that yeah yeah um it's, yeah. So, I mean, um, it's still a long, long way to go. Um, you know, it's still a long way to go here, but um, around the world, um, it's still a long way to go. But we've, uh, we better move on um, to Super because we've already, um, you know, we should spend about three hours on that topic, but uh, we can't. But we move on to Super. Um, National's got a new proposal for Super, putting it up by a couple of years uh, in the next 30 years. Um, you know, you're going to have double the amount of people on the pension uh, by that time. Uh, cost will go from nine billion a year to twenty billion a year. Um, you know, is this the right move? Uh, we were talking a little bit before. I, I mentioned means testing. Um, you know, some people work harder than others, um, and will, in my mind, will need to retire earlier um, than others will need, necessarily need to. Um, some people have a lot of wealth that won't necessarily need money from the state, but they still take that money from the state because they feel they're entitled to it because they have paid their taxes. You know, um, but you mentioned, um, Phil, that you still think a universal um, pension is the way to go. Yes, absolutely. I think there's just that the whole idea of means testing is absolutely um, fraught. But my bigger kind of concern is, you know, if you go back to the 18, mid-1800s industrial Britain, people were working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And over a period of, I don't know, 50 years, you know, workers fought and they got the 40-hour week. And yet that hasn't gone down at all in the 100 years since the 40-hour week came in. Yeah. In fact, loads of workers, there's a significant section of the New Zealand, of the working class in New Zealand that works much more than 40 hours a week, that works 50 hours a week and even 60 and 70 hours a week. Plus you've got couples where the, the two partners might be working like 100 hours a week or 110, 120 hours a week. We've got the situation with the pension where I remember my, my granddad, who was a railway worker, he retired in the mid-1960s. He was 60. That was the retirement age then. Mm-hmm. It's already gone up five years. Like, isn't life supposed to be getting better? Doesn't capitalism say that it's the best way to organise the resources <laughs> of the world, that it's more efficient? And for a certain period of time, that that was the case. Mm-hmm. They were able to cut the working week by probably about half. They had a, a retirement age of 60. But it's almost like capitalism is now historically kind of exhausted. It sort of reached the the post-World War II economic boom period, and since then it's been pretty crap. So we have these continuing crises. We have this idea that the pension age has to go up to 65, and now... In a couple of decades, it'll go up to 67. The working week has ended up um, getting longer. But the key thing really is the productivity of labour. If you make workers more and more productive through more and more um, sophisticated technology and all the rest of it, it doesn't really matter so much what the ratio of people working to people retired is. And that's the problem. Capitalism used to be able to make workers much, much more productive. And that level of development seems to have slowed down. Mm. So I think the problem is actually 
not a natural problem of simply an ageing population. It's a problem that the, the economic system doesn't seem to be able to expand labour productivity in the way that it used to. And the answer to me is not making people work two more years. It's actually thinking about a different way of organising society. Because really, we should be working a 30-hour week and we should be retiring at 55. Well, I mean, automisation is pretty much going to kill off the worker anyway very soon. So by the time that, that, that 70 uh, 67 comes in, they're talking maybe 50% of the labour force is going to be robots. So, yeah, I think that's that's a, a major criticism of Bill English and the national government here, is that there's a, yes, it's a, in the next decade or so, there's going to be a crisis in terms of, of how we manage um, society and an economy where the majority of jobs aren't going to exist anymore. Um, more robots are going to be used, more 3D printers are going to well, be we, used we for production. The they're using robots mm. and they're now doing white cutting and stuff. They've already mm. got boning machines. So it's going to be the yeah. least of our concerns whether the retirement age and, and the, um, the starting point for superannuation should be 65 or 67. It's what, what do we do as a society? Possibly the majority of people don't have a job, don't have access to an income unless their income is, is given to them by the state and how do we manage that situation so these are the big questions the pressing questions so yeah. Can I can I just put in a wee plug here? I did write a fairly substantial thing about three years, three or four years ago. If you Google Philip Ferguson, Redline Pensions Retirement, it'll bring it up. It's had a couple of thousand yeah. hits and, and views, and I look at the whole problem of um, of the, well, the whole issue of how an ageing population isn't actually a problem. It's how society is organised that makes it a problem mm-hmm. you know it's like there could be equal pay tomorrow it's not that there's not enough money or whatever you know it's the way society is organized that stops that from happening and so we need to start thinking about organizing our society in a different and better way so that every so that we do have equality Mm-hmm. and that people don't lead the kind of lives that so many people in this country lead now, where they don't know where the next rent payment is coming from, they don't know where the next food is coming from, you know, large numbers of children going to school hungry. I mean, in 2017, that is a complete, total fucking disgrace. And yeah. I don't use that word on radio very often. But, <laughs> no, you don't. But, but it, you know, there's no other way. If you if you use it sparingly, it's effective. Um, and I, it does just make me really, really angry that in 2017, you know, this is a more unequal society than 40 years ago. And yet, there's more wealth sloshing about in this country than ever. Yeah, yeah. Well, e- yeah economically, it's more... Um, mm. Definitely. I mean, um, a, a counter argument is uh, from the right is that uh, if we if, if we want generous uh, welfare um, benefits from the state, that, that entails having a, a, a large state with uh, large levels of taxation, say, and that's in a global globalised world, that suddenly becomes a disincentive for people investing in the country where, where, where there's high tax levels business tax levels, personal income tax levels, so in this globalised world, it's, it's yeah it's um, there, there's a need to shrink the state and have less wealthy benefits, um, like it or not, because we're competing with a whole lot of different countries in terms of getting investment here, um, in terms of production, in terms we, of trade yeah. But we could have, I mean I'm not in favour of a bigger, stronger state 
state, I think you'd reorganise society in a way that you'd actually have quite a minimum state because people wouldn't need all these benefits. They'd actually have 30-hour-a-week jobs that pay them a decent wage. Mm -hmm. If you look at where rationalisation is taking place, like, say, in banking, and they're getting rid of workers and having machines do more, you know, and, and you ring up and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Well, the profits are still the same. So why not keep the same amount of workers and just cut their work week down to 30 hours? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't need to have more social welfare benefits. You reorganise the economy. And the right-wing argument is totally within the existing system where it might hold water. But... But they we want, need to look outside the existing system. Yeah, well, we need to... But, but these private companies aren't going to want to... Shoot, <laughs> no, they're not. People, you know, th- no, they're the not. Thing. That's why the, I think the workers need to take them over. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I get, I'm, I'm all for that. But like I said, I have watched Scott Technologies, yeah. a robotic boning machine, at yeah. work, and it's quite impressive. Right. But it's, mm. it's scary. It's a robot right. with a knife cutting up meat. Uh, yep. But, yeah, it, and, and that was... That was a decade ago. Yeah, that was a decade ago. But isn't that good? Because that means that potentially we should be able to work less. Because the profits are still going to be, you know. Yeah, but the, but the one less job, they're going to go. Oh, you can do thirty hours, and the robot will do. No, 10. but that's why we need to look outside the existing system, yeah. like, and like who has the power to make those decisions. Yeah. Well.